you have your smartphone or your tablet on you and you have the Evangel app on there, you want to open it right now. And on there are all the announcements that we gave you earlier in the service. But also that way you can follow along with the scriptures and what we're going to be talking about in God's word today. And so we are, of course, uh, working through the story. And some of you have um, bought your own copy of the story. It looks like this. Some of you are following along online with the links that we send out each week. But basically, the story is we are going through together as a church the entire Bible from beginning to end chronologically in about 31 weeks, give or take. And uh, it's been just fantastic to do this as we work it, because we're starting to see, even though we're only on chapter four, we're starting to see that everything ties together, that there is a big picture, and that all of it is pointing to Jesus as God's big reveal for, for the, the problem of sin that's in each of us, and the sinful uh, spiritual DNA that's a part of every single one of us. And so uh, we're going to go into chapter four today, but I just want to remind you a little bit of where we've been, because this is all going to tie together today. And so we started off with with creation. And we said creation was intentional, that God did creation on purpose, and that because God created the world and created you on purpose, that you matter. You were created with purpose. You were created with value. God's desire was to share life with you, and that has not changed. That does not change. And then we went on from there. We said, but sin has ended up infecting each of us. And it's a real problem. It's, it's a real problem in each of our lives. And, and we can't even just go ahead and, and blame somebody else because, you know, it's just true in all of our lives. And it becomes something that, that creates a break in the relationship between us and God. God is perfect. God is sinless. And our sin is this giant block that gets in the way of us and God. And it happened because we, as, a, as humanity, as the human race, we exercised free will at the very beginning. And we watch Adam and Eve in their original story go, you know what? I think I'm going to exercise my free will to have the knowledge of good and evil. And all of us since then go, no, don't do that. Because we're living in a world that is a result of that. We know far more evil than anyone should ever have to know. And we don't want to do that. But that is what has happened. But then we see that right from the start. God starts working to come up with a solution. And God starts working to overcome this issue of sin that we have in our lives. And one of the, for example, one of the first results that he gives, uh, one of the first results that we see of sin is shame. As, as Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and they go, this feels weird and it feels wrong and they feel shame and they try to cover up with fig leaves and that doesn't work. And so God, God provides them with animal skins and looks after them, which tells us two things. It tells us, number one, God looks after his people even when they mess up. And number two, it points to the fact that when God does, there's a cost. And, 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 and God, there's, it's the first mention in the Bible of sacrifice of life, of animal skins that are given. And we see that humanity keeps getting worse and the sin problem is not going away. And there's this phrase introduced that every inclination of their hearts was to evil. And then God gets to the point where he regrets creating humanity. And we have Noah and the, the giant boat and the flood, which is wiping everything out. And then there's this huge covenant that's made that God signs with a rainbow in the sky and says, never again, never again will I do this. Not because humanity has gotten better, even though humanity still is inclined to evil and still has a sin problem. God goes, I will not, I will not do that again. And he makes this covenant. And then there's this promise that's given with, with Abraham. God makes this promise to Abraham and he says, you are going to have so many descendants. They're going to be as many as the stars in the sky. 
and the whole world, all nations, are going to be blessed through you and through your descendants. And, 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 and then there's this covenant where, where God walks through this path, and we talked about it in the second or third week. We talked about God walking this path, uh, making a covenant while, while he put Abraham to sleep and God doing both sides of it and saying, so basically, Abraham, if I don't hold up my end of this covenant, it's on me. And Abraham, if you don't hold up your end of this covenant, it's on me. And God's saying, it's on me no matter what. And there's this moment then when we see when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, and we go, what is that? And then at the last moment, God stops the whole thing and rescues him. But it's a hint and is pointing ahead to Jesus as God's son who will become the sacrifice for our sin. And then we talked about how this promise that God gave to Abraham included land, a specific space that, that would belong to Abraham and to his descendants, and that's given to Isaac, and then is given to Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and one of his sons' names is Joseph, and we looked at that story last week, and if you weren't here, you need to catch up on it, because that story answers the question, how on earth did the Israelites ever get into Egypt? That's going to answer that question, and that is where we are today, but ultimately, this is a story of God bringing good out of evil, because it's still his story. It's still God's story. And so we're in chapter four today, which is called Deliverance, if you've been reading it. And last week, we, um, we left the, the Israelite people in Egypt, and that was a good thing at the time. Joseph was there, and, and Joseph had been sent there, and then this whole thing had happened, and it was good. He brought his whole extended family there because they were being saved from famine. But at the end of that story, we left it hanging a little bit with Joseph after he had spent decades living in Egypt and his whole extended family is there. And on his deathbed, he says to his family, it's not over. God's story is not over. And when you leave Egypt and when you go back to the land that God has given you, you need to take my bones with you because this story isn't finished. So that's where we left it last week. So now we're in Egypt and times have changed whole lot of time has gone by. There's a new pharaoh. There's a new king. This pharaoh doesn't know his history or doesn't care. And he doesn't know who Joseph is. And he doesn't know who Joseph's people are. All he knows is that during this time in Egypt, when Joseph's brothers, 12, he had 11 brothers, and when they moved and they had all their families and the whole family came to Egypt, they thrived there. They multiplied. They did very well. And now they're not just a family. Now they are an entire people group. And Pharaoh is feeling threatened. You know, we see that all the way through history and around the world at different moments when, when somebody that's a specific culture, whatever dominant culture and wherever they live, and then somebody else comes in and they're the other and they're a little bit different. And the people that are, I don't like this. I feel nervous. I feel threatened. And so they sometimes respond and do horrible things. And this is what happened with Pharaoh, with these, with these Israelites um, in his nation who are thriving. And so he feels threatened by them and he's afraid of them. And so he does two things. He enslaves them, and then he starts murdering their baby boys. And so Moses is one of those baby boys that's supposed to be murdered. And when he's born, his mom hides him, 
And when she can't hide him anymore, because it's really hard to hide, hide a baby that makes noise or a toddler that starts walking, and you can't anymore. And so she makes this waterproof basket, and she floats him out into the Nile River among the, the, the bulrushes, and she sends his sister to stay on the shore and just kind of watch and make sure that he's safe there and he's hidden in there. And so Moses' sister watches as, as Moses is out there in this little basket, and Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River. And she comes down to bathe, and as she's bathing, she finds this basket, and she finds this baby in the basket, and she knows, she knows, she knows what it is that her father is doing, and she knows that this will be one of the Israelite children that's been hidden away because he was supposed to die. And so she says, you know what, I'm going to take him, I'm going to adopt him. So she takes him up out of the water, and Moses' sister, because she's sharp, comes running over, I see that you have a baby, would you like me to find a nanny for that baby? Pharaoh's daughter says, well, yes, that would be great. Okay. So Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mom, brings her over. Hey, this can be okay. Take him home, look after him, and I'll take him when he's ready. So Moses goes back home. But now he's safe because now he's Pharaoh's daughter's son. And so, so he's raised a little bit in his own home until he's old enough, and then he gets sent to court, uh, to the Egyptian court. And so he ends up having this identity. Uh, he has a really strong sense of, of Israel's identity and of God's promises. There's no doubt his parents and his family would have poured that into him and sung songs over him and played games and reminded him this is the promise of God. But at the same time, he grows up and becomes very familiar with Egyptian government and the way things go and how Pharaoh works and all of that. And, and so it ends up just putting kind of a conflict within him because by birth, he's one of the Israelites and he should be a slave. But by adoption, he's now one of the Egyptians and he's the master of his own people. And so it just creates this horrible conflict within. And so one day, now he's all grown up and he sees an Egyptian master beating an Israelite slave and this this just injustice rises up in him in this conflict and he kills the Egyptian master the Egyptian overseer and then flees because that's a crime and he flees the country and he ends up outside of Egypt in a place called Midian and he's there for about 40 years during that 40 years he gets married and he has children and he becomes a shepherd and looks after animals and he probably figures, as all of us would, that that's the end of his story. But it's not. And on page 45, or in Exodus chapter 2 in the Bible, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So one day Moses is out in Midian on the backside of the desert, and he's out there with his, with his sheep, and he, he notices something odd in the distance, and so he goes over and he goes closer, and there's a bush, just this random bush, and it's on fire. None of the other ones are, just, just this one, this one bush is on fire, and he goes, well, that's kind of odd. And then he walks over a little closer, and he realizes that even though it's on fire, it's not burning up, which is weird. That's really odd. And he's like, well, that's, that's odd. And then a voice speaks to him from the bush, and he realizes he is in the presence of God. And this voice speaks to him and says, I have remembered my people, and it's time for my people to go home. Moses, you're going to lead them, and you're going to start by confronting Pharaoh. 
And then there's this, this back and forth that happens in Scripture where Moses is hesitant, and understandably so. He goes, um, I don't think so. I don't think I'm the person to lead. I don't think I'm the person to confront Pharaoh. He's not at all sure that he can handle the job. He's going, you know, God, do you even know who I am? I, I don't think I'm the person to do it. And then he kind of asks an even more important question, and he goes, because God, who are you? And God turns around and answers the question, and he says to Moses, I am. This is God's name. This is God's name. I am. And it's not just a name. It's a revealing of who God is. Because anytime that we see in the Bible where, where, where somebody's name is changed, it's because a story has happened. And so you see um, Jacob's name was changed to Israel after he wrestled with God. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. And so every name carries a story with it. And so, and so names change when stories change. So when God says, I'm going to tell you my name, it's God saying, I'm going to tell you my story. This is who I am. And God says, my name is I am. And it covers everything. It's not static. This is a verb. This is not I was. This is not I will be. This is in all the times and in all the places, I am. This is, this is uh, indicating that God is the one who is, and God is also the one who causes to be. Therefore, he's the creator. And this is what he says, I am. I am all of it. I am all the time. I am everything. I am not limited by time or space. Just I am, I am. So Moses takes that to Pharaoh. And he goes to Pharaoh and he confronts him as God has told him to do. And everything was supposed to get better. And it immediately gets worse. And so Moses goes back to God. And God reminds Moses of who he is and what he said he would do. And what the covenant says. And so this is what God said. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. And then God gives this speech to Moses, reminding him, and it's this whole I am, I will series of statements. And God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. I will bring you out of Egypt, and I will free you from slavery. And I will, God says, redeem you. And redeem is to, is to rescue or to set free from something that is owed by a guilty person. And he goes, I'm going to do that. I'm going I'm to redeem and, and pull you out of captivity. And God says, I will take you as my own. And I will be your God. You are not abandoned here in Egypt. You are not nameless. You are not left on your own. I will make you mine. And you will know who I am because you will see it. I will bring you to the land that I promised you, and I will give it to you because I am the Lord. And it's this incredible speech by God of this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. And it's this moment that is going to matter to the whole story, to all of it, beginning to end. It's going to give meaning to so much of the rest of the story. So, Moses goes to Pharaoh, 
And this is when God sends 10 plagues on Egypt and and Moses warns Pharaoh of each of them. And by the way, each of those plagues, we're not going to go through them today, but each of them specifically undermines one of the Egyptian gods. So this is God of Israel going, I am and I am bigger than the Egyptian gods. And this is also not just a story of people escaping slavery. This is a story of God demonstrating to Israel, I am. It's God saying to Israel, you know, Egypt might look really powerful. They might be the biggest power in the world, but I am bigger than the world, and I am bigger than Egypt. And it's also a story, by the way, of God saying to his people, you're my people, and, and, and you, are, you are mine. And so there's this moment when the third plague comes along, which is flies that goes all over the place. And there's a detail that's added, and it's not in the story version that you have, but it's in Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. God says, but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. And remember, I told you last week that, that, that at that time, there, it was assumed that gods were attached to specific geographical territories. They only belonged in that territory, and they didn't have power of other territories out there. And God is going, I'm not contained by geography. I am not contained by a specific territory. God is upending the Egyptian gods on their own turf, okay? And so God says, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So this is the final demonstration of God's supremacy. This is the final plague. This is, uh, the, this is God saying to Israel, he says, this is it. This is the beginning of your history, which is quite a statement to make. Only someone who is outside of history can announce when history is about to start. And so God says to Israel in Exodus 12, verse 2, this month is to be for you the first month of your year, you're about to start. And this is where the details matter. Because God has already referred to Israel, he's called them his firstborn son. And Pharaoh had been killing baby boys. And Pharaoh had been enslaving all the ones that were left alive. And these are God's kids. These are God's people. And so the final demonstration of supremacy over Egypt's gods is going to involve Egypt's firstborns. And the other thing that I want you to notice in the details is that every other plague up till now, the first nine plagues, required nothing from Israel. They asked for nothing from Israel. Israel just watched passively as they happened and as God does, does the work. But this one, this tenth one, is going to require action on, behalf of, on the part of God's people. It's going to require some action on their part, and that action is going to be sacrifice. And, and, and it, God says, take a lamb that's perfect, that has no defect, and sacrifice it. Put the blood around the door frames of your houses. By the way, if you have the app open, you'll see a link in there. Check it out later. It's a three-minute video that talks about some of the significance of the blood on the door frames. And God says, you need to paint the blood on your door frames, and you need to eat the roasted lamb along with bitter herbs. And bread made without any yeast. And by the way, put your coat and your shoes on and eat as if you're in a hurry. Because everything's about to change. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, page 51, eat the Passover lamb in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood from the Passover lamb that's been put on the door frames of your house, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is it. This is the demonstration of God. This is the demonstration of God as I am over everything else. This points to Israel's God as more powerful than any other God. This points to sacrifice as part of salvation, as part of the rescue of God's people. This points to, by the way, humanity's exercise of free will to choose to accept that sacrifice in order to have that salvation. They had to choose to do this crazy act. And how could they be sure? I mean, we all sit here and we go, well, we've heard this story. I mean, it's Passover. It wasn't Passover to them. It was just another Thursday. And Moses goes, you need to uh, kill a lamb and paint the blood on your doorframe. Don't worry. This is, this is what God says. Are you sure? Are you sure this is what God says to do? They had to follow Moses' very odd instructions in faith. They had to adjust their routines. They had to do all of that. And they had seen what God was doing. They had seen all these plagues. They weren't doubting that God was pretty powerful. But just so you know, the first nine plagues hadn't actually done what they were supposed to do. Pharaoh just got angrier. Life got more difficult. And so this is the first thing that God does that says, now you need to make a choice. Do you want to be part of this or do you not? Because blood doesn't just wash off of doorposts the next day, you know, if it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, they're going to be now marked as those rebels that followed Moses. And, and, and it's, this is requiring them to change their routine. It's requiring them to change their schedule. It's requiring them to act as if they believe that God is who he says he is, which is faith. So the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And they were free. Just like that. Everything changed. Just like Joseph had told them, take my bones when you go because you're going to go. Just like God had told Abraham about 600 years before. Remember that moment when we said God walked this, this covenant path and the, the it's on me moment. At that time, this is what he had said to Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God had said to Abraham at that time, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. 
in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. These were God's words to Abraham when he was one man. And then Abraham had a son, Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And he has 12 sons, including Joseph. And they all move to Egypt, and they become 12 tribes. And now, this promise that God made to one man has now been carried through, and it's now being applied to a people group that includes 600,000 men, plus women and children. So we estimate it was about 1 or 2 million people that were set free from Egypt that day. And they're walking out of Egypt because God saved them, and he set them free just as he had promised. This is what Passover is. This is going to become an annual feast in the culture and the history of Israel. It's going to be this annual reminder where they celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. They celebrate their freedom from slavery. And, And Passover is going to be told each year, and the Passover lamb is always going to be part of that story. The Passover lamb, that rescue, each year they will sacrifice a lamb in each of their homes and they will tell their story, this is what God did. This is how I am saved us. And every year they celebrate it and they tell the story and they do it year after year after year and decade after decade and century after century. It gets passed down until one Passover night in Jerusalem. There's a group of men, Jewish men, gathered together with their teacher in a room to celebrate Passover, just like they've been doing their whole lives and just like their ancestors have been doing before them. And they tell the story and they remember. They remember sin and sacrifice and slavery and covenant and God's promise. And they remember that it's on me promise of God. And they remember Abraham taking his son Isaac and Isaac saying, where's the lamb? And God saying, God, or Abraham saying, God will provide the lamb. And they remember and they tell the story of, the, of slavery in Egypt and the nine plagues. And then that last one, sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of your house and eat quickly with your shoes and your coat on because everything's about to change. And they tell the story of deliverance and of God rescuing his people and fulfilling his promise and fulfilling his covenant with them. And they tell the story and they remember it just as all the Israelites have been doing and passing down for centuries in this room in Jerusalem until on this particular night and this particular Passover, their teacher... Jesus says, in essence, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. That covenant that God made with Abraham of it's on me, that's me. I'm the lamb. It says in Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. I'm the lamb. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I'm the lamb. And the next day, Jesus died, and his body was broken, and his blood was poured out, and it was the final sacrifice to save us from the slavery of sin, the problem of sin that's part of our spiritual DNA. And it becomes our choice now, our free will to choose to accept Jesus' sacrifice and salvation or not. And that, that supper, that Passover supper, became known as the Last Supper. And it changed that night and became something, therefore, that was known as the Lord's Supper, or communion, we call it sometimes. And now here we are, and over 2,000 years later, followers of Jesus remember that night. And we tell the story, and we remember this is what God did for us. And we drink the juice, and we eat the bread, and we remember and we accept Jesus' sacrifice because this is God's story. So we're going to take communion together this morning, all of us here. I'm going to invite you to stand at this moment, and the servers are moving towards the station, and the worship team is coming to the platform. And Let me just explain how this is going to go. If you're here and you're visiting and this isn't your normal church, you're still welcome to participate. We're glad to have you here. If you are here and you go, I, I've never accepted Jesus' sacrifice. I've, I don't know. This is the first time I've heard this. I didn't know about it and all of that. I want you to know that today can be the day when you do that. Today can be the beginning of your history. It can be the beginning of something new. And so I want you to know that you are welcome to participate. And as we walk through communion together, we will pray together. And you can join in as part of that and make a decision to accept Jesus' sacrifice in your life as we take communion. And so here's what we're going to do. You can see different stations through the sanctuary and in the Connect Cafe downstairs. We're going to ask you to just move out from your seats and go to one of those stations, and they'll give you a little bit of bread, and they'll give you a little bit of juice. And you take that with you, and you go back to your seat, and you just wait there. And what happens is once everybody has gotten their stuff and they've moved back to their seat, then we'll we'll all take it together. So I'm going to ask, while we do that, the worship team is going to lead us in some worship. Would you move out of your seats right now and just head to the station that's nearest you, get the bread, get the juice, take it back to your seat, and just hold it, just wait there, and then we'll take it together. You put your love on the line To bear the weight of sin that was mine
your first time, if you've never accepted Jesus' sacrifice or forgiveness of sin, this is the perfect time. Today's the day. Bible says while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. We just pray this morning, Jesus, by eating this today, I'm acknowledging that it's your sacrifice that rescues me. The problem of sin is real in my life, and I can't fix it. So I accept your sacrifice forgive my sins. I acknowledge you as God. Jesus, be my God. Be my God. Let's take the bread together. took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins Jesus those first Israelites they put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes as we drink this juice today would you let it be a symbol of your blood and your sacrifice on the doorposts of our hearts? Make this a mark that is there forever in our lives as belonging to you. We accept and we thank you for including us in your covenant. 
Can we take the juice together? Can we just begin to raise our voices and thank our God for what he's done? God, you have rescued us. You have saved us. You are a God who keeps his promises. So to the one who has rescued our soul, to the one who has welcomed us home, to the one who is the Savior of all, our God, we sing to you forever. Come on and lift your voice. Let's worship our God this morning. Sing it with us. To the one who has rescued. To the one who has rescued my soul. To the one who has welcomed me home. To the one who is Savior of all. I sing shaped us as we walk out of here we're going to go to our work and our jobs and our families and our finances and neighborhoods and all the things that are part of our regular lives oh God would you help us to carry Jesus into those places would you help us to walk out of here today and do good and love each other and reveal Jesus, the Lamb of God, to a world that desperately needs him. And we ask that you would help us to do that well, to do that with joy, and to do that with honor to you. We give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
God bless you. Have a fantastic week. We're going to ask you to do something we don't normally ask you to do. Would you, I'm going to say this as politely as possible, exit this sanctuary immediately so that we can set up for our Fall Fun Fest. We would love to have you stick around for the Fun Fest. Come and have fun. We're going to do good for our neighborhood this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.